It's the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, brace yourselves, folks, because I have a stat here, a number that will blow your mind. One billion. Hmm. On second thought, I guess that requires a little splaining, which you will get in due time, and you will be dazzled, believe me. But first, uh, let me present the gent who came up with that figure and many other astounding insights we're going to hear today. He is Tom Abel, or is it Abel? Both work. Okay, no preference? <laughs> Not really. Well, in that case, I'm going to call him Abel because he is. Tom is a physicist at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, or SLAC. He is a director of the Kavli Institute for Particle Astrophysics and Cosmology, or KIPAC, and his specialty is computational cosmology, or he uses computers to reconstruct the early evolution of the universe, uh, particularly a period known as the Cosmic Dark Age, about which, uh, as you can tell from the name, we are largely ignorant. We do know that it started about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, not uh, very long in cosmic terms, when the very first atoms formed. And uh, then it ended a few hundred million years later, when those same atoms had gotten together and assembled into things. Big, wonderful things like stars and galaxies and black holes. We know how the universe looked going into the Dark Age because we have snapshots captured in what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, which we can still see today. And we know what it looked like coming out because we can see that too. Our most powerful telescopes can actually look back and see those young stars and galaxies that sprang out of the primal gloom. So we have the before, we have the after, but we ain't got no in-between. You know, uh, it's a little like we have, on the one hand, this fuzzy sonogram of an embryo, and then, on the other hand, a prom photo of a well-turned-out teenager. I'm so proud. But uh, those all-important formative years when our little universe was taking shape and really coming into its own, well, those pages of the family album are just blank. It's a big gap, and scientists don't like gaps, which is why Tom is so ably stepping in with some very big computers and some elegant simulations to fill in those crucial missing years of the cosmic coming-of-age story. And uh, by the way, Tom is going to be speaking on these very topics with some great visuals, including movies that he and his team at Stanford have produced. That's taking place this coming week in our broadcast area on Tuesday, May 27th at 7.30 p.m. at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz. It is the inaugural Mandel Lecture presented by the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz, and it is free and open to the public. Hey, you know what else is free and open to the public? Why, this interview, the one you're about to hear. When we look out into space with the largest telescopes, in a sense we're looking back in time uh, because we're looking far away and it has taken the light from distant objects billions of years to get to us and therefore we're seeing things that happened billions of years ago. What is the oldest thing we can currently see out there? Yes, telescopes uh, are like time machines. The faintest objects, the farthest away objects um, we see existed in the universe uh, when it was only a few hundred million years old. And what are those objects? Interestingly,
interesting. We can find really big black holes um, very early on, mostly because they tend to, as they eat a lot of uh, gas, <laughs> they tend to be very bright. But we also can see galaxies that have many, many new stars forming, and they get just bright enough that we can pick them up with telescopes uh, either in space or on the ground. So exactly how old is the oldest uh, of these objects that we can see? Some of the oldest things we can see, the light has traveled to us for about 13 billion years. So these are things that existed 13 billion years ago. That's correct, and very likely they don't exist now and certainly not in the form they were at the time they emitted the light that we see today. So somewhere between the very early period when the universe was extremely tiny and then it inflated to macroscopic size, and less than a billion years later, all kinds of things had happened. Stars had formed, even galaxies, in this sort of first really creative phase <laughs> of the cosmos. Uh, but we can't see that period, right? Right. Sometimes it's referred to as the Dark Age. Why can't we see anything? If we can see all the way back to 13 billion years ago, why can't we see a little farther? The very first things, um, as we see in our supercomputer calculations now, are actually uh, very small things. Um, objects, maybe sometimes with just one star in it. Um, it might be a bright star, but it's just not bright enough for our telescopes to um, pick that up already. So while we can see some of the brightest and most extreme things um, back at a time when the universe was uh, um, only maybe a few hundred million years old, there's still a whole period where we know there must be objects, but they're still just too faint to be seen with our current technology. And I guess that is why you have had to turn to your computations. Yes, the computers here and these calculations are sort of a tool in a way of discovery, in a way of allowing us to predict uh, in a way, the past. And the truly fascinating part of this work at the moment is that, of course, our technology is getting better. We will have a next-generation space telescope that can see even further back. Um, in 10 to 15 years' time, we'll have uh, extremely large telescopes um, with 100 times the collecting uh, power of our current ones. And we'll be able to see, uh, you know, even further into the past. And that's one of the truly exciting things in this field at the moment. Are you talking about the uh, James Webb Space Telescope? That's correct. That's going to replace the Hubble out there in space. Mm -hmm. So that should help, um, but there's still this period of you know gestation, of formation, <laughs> when the universe is really being born. Before that, yes. I, I mentioned this period of inflation, and then what is the period that happened immediately afterwards where for several hundred thousand years there was nothing but kind of a cosmic soup of particles? That's right. So we had this time where we had no structure, and so you had electrons and protons flying around, and all the radiation left over from the Big Bang was just bouncing around between all the electrons, scatter <laughs> off the electrons. And it was just like this fog. Uh, radiation just couldn't get anywhere. It would always bounce off of uh, electrons. But then about uh, almost 400,000 years after the Big Bang, because of the expansion of the universe, it cooled off, and the electrons started circling around the protons. So you now had neutral hydrogen. And before you know it, all the photons now um, don't bounce off the electrons, but instead go in straight lines. And some of these photons now 
um, have been going for these 13.8 billion years in straight lines and are hitting our detectors now. That's um, the cosmic microwave background radiation. Yes, that's the cosmic microwave background um, that has given us so much information about what the universe uh, looked like very early on. So just to clarify for our listeners, um, in this extremely early phase, you have uh, the universe expanding, you have this kind of fog of loose particles, electrons, <laughs> atomic nuclei, that then condense a few hundred thousand years after the, the beginning of all of this into atoms. And that's when light is released. And that light has been traveling ever since, billions of years. Uh, and we're picking it up now in the form of uh, microwave radiation in space. So we have information about that you know, moment when the light was released. And we have information from our telescopes uh, from, oh, a few hundred million years later, right, um, that show that galaxies have formed, that stars have formed. So there's this in-between period, and that's where uh, we have no direct information, and that's where uh, you and your computers are beginning to simulate what might have happened. Yeah, in fact, the, this cosmic microwave background radiation um, was just left over from the Big Bang. And once that started traveling in straight lines, um, you know, we can see that part. But then we have this whole period that we call the Dark Ages, where um, there was no new sources uh, that made any new light. Uh, there was nothing that emitted back then. And it's a period where we don't really you know, have direct access to. We cannot probe it directly with telescopes at the moment. In our computer models, however, we can watch a whole movie, <laughs> in a way, how this, what processes were occurring, and um, how then finally structures can come about that give us um, new signals, new light, stars, and supernovae and the like. Um, I want to ask about how you even model these processes. And then what are your inputs? What is the data that you put into them? Let's, let's take that a step at a time. How do you model processes during this dark period when you don't have any direct you know, information on what happened? So in order to model the universe, we have to take into account you know, everything we know about it. Okay, so what is it made of? How much uh, matter do we have? That includes this mysterious uh, matter that we just call dark matter. That includes uh, the expansion of the universe. That also includes uh, what we call dark energy. Um, so many mysterious components at the moment. And at the same time, we have to follow how the gas behaves. It's this hydrogen and helium gas. And that's really like modeling a fluid. So there's a whole slew of these processes, including chemistry and uh, atomic physics and radiation uh, physics, that all get put together in, in our computer model. <laughs> so your computer is, is like a test tube or a Petri dish. You throw in the ingredients and watch what happens. That's right. In astrophysics, uh, these computer simulations um, are, in essence, our laboratory. If you think about, uh, we can't take two neutron stars and throw it at each other or just make a black hole here in the laboratory and study how it behaves. That would not only be very dangerous, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but also... Uh, likely very costly, um, you know, in most of the things, of course, uh, purely impossible. Um, and so when we look out and we get an observation, we see a snapshot of 
what the universe or this particular object looked like at that time. But if we're trying to get a sense of how it got there or what it might do in the future, um, we really go back to uh, modeling it on the computer and and try out uh, effects and sort of see what what happened if you know we throw this neutron star into the black hole or how the gas falls onto the star and many questions like this we can only explore using um, these computer models. Well, you know, when a, a meteorologist uses a computer model to predict the weather, they can use data from actual atmospheric conditions, and they can compare their results to what actually happens, and they can tune their models so that they know that their predictions you know, have a high percentage of being correct, which is why they can say a 25% chance of rain. But you guys don't have that ability, do you? What a fantastic question. Um, yes, the, the intriguing part for us is we get to start with these data that we have from the cosmic microwave background radiation. So knowing what the universe looked like very early on um, is extremely helpful to us. And we're even very fortunate there that it looks like it was a very simple place at that time. It was almost completely homogeneous. It was almost the same everywhere. And it only differed by very small amounts from region to region. In that small deviation, where in one region you have a little bit more mass than in other regions, that's what uh, allowed gravity to amplify, to um, you know, pull together more and more material. And so these early phases, we can actually calculate very well. And what you had back then was a lot of hydrogen, some helium, right? That's right. Uh, just really simple, light elements. Um, as you're saying, there were irregularities, and that's why you have the little seeds of what would become stars and galaxies, right? That's correct. And in fact, it's actually the slight variations in the density of dark matter uh, that influences this the most, because dark matter is um, most of the mass in the universe. There's six times more of that than we have in this hydrogen-helium gas. And so that's what fuels the gravity. Uh, the stronger is it also, you know, really controls how a structure comes about in the universe. Yeah, so I, I should uh, amend my statement to say that you had a lot of hydrogen and helium, but you had even more of this dark matter that's the vast majority of matter in the universe today. And at this point, I mean, we know dark matter exists because we can see the effect it has on galaxies. We can't actually see it, and we still don't even know what it's made of. I mean, the particle hasn't been discovered yet. So how do you guys model that? Yeah, the beauty about um, dark matter, even though we really don't know exactly what, uh, what it's made of, is we've uh, sort of over the last few decades, we've got so many constraints now of what it cannot be and of all the things that it cannot do. So it doesn't reflect off light. It doesn't absorb light. Um, we know that it doesn't interact uh, with regular matter um, strongly. There's so many constraints we have on that that it becomes actually reasonably straightforward uh, to model such a, a fluid that doesn't like to interact with regular gas or with radiation. It's very simple-minded, dark matter. It just cares about gravity, right? As far as we can tell, it's really just the gravitational force that acts on it, yes. Um, and so looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation, this kind of map that you get you know, from microwave detectors, that show these, you know, the kind of patchy 
early, early universe with areas of greater density and less density. That's actually reflecting um, the effect of, of dark matter? Yes, it's really the combination of um, dark matter and the gas that makes um, these patterns in the cosmic microwave background radiation. Great. So you've answered one part of that question I asked a minute ago, which is, what are your inputs for your model? So your inputs are, you know, this map, this picture of the early cosmos from the cosmic microwave background radiation. The other part, though, is how do you check whether your model's accurate? I mean, again, the, 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 the weather predictors can check their forecasts against the actual outcomes. What do you guys do to make sure you're not completely off the mark? Our good advantage here is that our input is actually fairly simple. Um, and by now we've characterized that very well. So the next step we have to do is we have to make sure that the uh, equations that we solve, that we solve them correctly. Um, So for that, we have um, just a few options, you know, actual equations that we have some known solutions for in simple situations. So we ask our computer codes to to reproduce that, to actually get the um, analytic solutions that we have. So we can check that, verify that the computer at least is solving the correct equation. But it's an excellent question. How do we actually know whether our models are correct? And so in the study of the very first objects, we're lucky in the sense that the universe is much, much simpler at that time. Since we don't have any stars yet, we didn't have any black holes and no supernovas go off and uh, chemical species flying around all over the place. Uh, We have many options there check our models. Hmm. However, the tricky bit is once you make stars or something very dense as, uh, as a black hole, you gain an enormous amount of energy from all this material that collapses to smaller and smaller scales. There's all this gravitational energy that now can get released in other forms, in radiation um, predominantly. And it can really affect how everything else around it will start behaving. And so as soon as we have stars and black holes and galaxies, it becomes much, much harder to check our models. Because <laughs> things get complicated, really complicated. <laughs> they get really complicated at that point. That's right. Uh, let's stick with the simpler part first, though. <laughs> so let's say, uh, and I guess this is one of the things you do, right, is to, to model the birth of the very first stars, right? That's correct. In fact, uh, it was that simplicity of this problem that uh, had me so enthralled to work on this for uh, you know a decade and a half to sort of just figure out what is the very first thing in the universe. I figured, well, that question at least we should be able to find an answer to. And have you? Yes, we have. And our prediction now is, you know, at the time we really didn't know is it like really big black holes, is it tiny little stars, or what is it? What we found is uh, that it's actual massive stars. And we pin this down to a small mass range. What we've learned from these computer simulations is they're somewhere between 30 and 300 uh, times the mass of the sun. Wow. Um, I'm not sure which, actually. This is still sort of a, a theoretical, in some sense, uncertainty, sort of an error bar. Because <laughs> in the calculation, I can uh, follow it until it makes what we call a protostar. It's sort of the first little nugget of a star. It's very dense already. Uh, but it's only about 10 times the mass of Jupiter. But what we see there is it's, uh, there's so much mass flowing towards it, and it's growing rapidly in mass, that I'm quite certain it can be smaller than about 30 times the mass of the sun. Mm. This thing in the center, it cannot switch off. There's too much material falling towards it. Mm. 
Um, but at, at about 30 times the mass of the sun, you'd think, well, okay, it could put out enough radiation to really slow down um, any further accretion of mass onto it. And so it could be as small as 30 solar masses. On the other hand, if, if it doesn't, uh, if it has a hard time stopping it, it may, in fact, accrete all the way up to about 300 times the mass of the sun. And that's the tricky bit right now where we uh, have a hard time on the computer to model this full process. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the parts that you sort of know pretty well. I mean, you start, as we said, with a bunch of hydrogen, some helium. Um, and I don't know, is dark matter at all involved in, in the actual formation of stars? Uh, yes. So dark matter plays a crucial role in the sense that it, it in a way, is like the bucket where things collect in. Uh, dark matter collapses uh, first. It, makes, it doesn't collapse very much. Um, it's only a few hundred times denser than the mean density in the universe. So it just just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. But that's enough to sort of be uh, this place uh, where you have gravitational attraction to. So it drags in all this gas, and then um, you have this bucket full of gas. And now this gas uh, tends to make one giant mistake. <laughs> um, its mistake is to give off light, and that has extreme consequences. The gas gives off light because it, it has a particular temperature, right? So that means all the atoms and uh, molecules are flying around in there at a certain speed. Now, when they give off light, the constituents, these atoms or molecules, start slowing down. When they slow down, they have less pressure to resist gravity. And so gas, by its very nature of constantly giving off radiation, allows gravity to pull it together further and further. And so this hydrogen-helium gas now, uh, that can contract two tiny little objects, whereas the dark matter doesn't do that. It doesn't give off radiation. It's smart about it. <laughs> and this way, it can stay stable. So gravity will pull on it, but the dark matter, all that happens is it gets somewhat faster. And all those little dark matter particles you can imagine just being on orbits, just like, you know, the stars go around orbits and galaxies. It's stable. Um, they can do that for a very long time. Aha. Uh -huh. So let's continue the story then. So you start to get the uh, ordinary matter, the non-dark matter, collapsing, condensing, yeah. getting denser and denser. Um, initially, I imagine this is, this is not yet a star, but at what point does nuclear fusion start to happen and, you know, turns into a nuclear reactor, which is what a star is? This gas is a very long way to go. If you think about <laughs> our, uh, our sun, it's uh, 10 to the 30. So there's a, a one with 30 zeros uh, times denser than the mean density in the universe. So what that means is you really have to contract uh, a factor of 10 billion times. Like it was a huge region that contracted uh, down to make, to make our sun. It's just a crazy range of scales. So think about that. Our sun is about a trillion times smaller than the Milky Way. So all this material... Uh, that ends up in, in stars comes just from enormous regions. And they often joke about this because this is true also for the atoms in your body. They really came from a region that um, was likely at least a million light years across. Oh, wow. <laughs> you mean in a single human body? <laughs> in a single human body. And that's also something I'll talk about in, uh, at the lecture, is that the, if you just go and ask all your atoms in your body, to ask them, okay, you know, what, what's your story? Where did you come from? Uh, you get 
you know, billions uh, of different answers. You know, for some of them, it was fairly boring. Actually, most of your atoms in the body is hydrogen. That one was just made in the Big Bang. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's the same old story. I'm 13.8 billion years old. You know, uh, we'll still have a very interesting past. That it went through many different stars and uh, used to be part of many different galaxies before ending up in the Milky Way. And so they have an interesting story. But then the ones with even more interesting stories are the ones that you know, there's a carbon and oxygen and iron and all these uh, different elements have quite uh, quite different paths. They were generated in stars. Yeah. They were generated in stars, and in fact, um, I really asked myself uh, a few years ago, I was like, how many stars, you know, were actually involved in making us? I don't know. For some reason, I thought it was four. Didn't <laughs> 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 make any sense, but you know, just sort of my intuition, like when I first asked, asked wow. it was like I was like four. Did you think that because it would take four different types of stars to generate all those elements? Actually, it had no scientific basis oh, at okay. all. Okay. It was just you know extremely wrong <laughs> guess. Uh, because now that I've uh, thought about this some more, I think uh, the correct answer is somewhere more around one billion. How do you figure that out? So you think about our Milky Way used to be, you know, uh, broken up into lots and lots of little lumps. So galaxies uh, form what we call hierarchically. So first you have little ones, and a whole bunch of little ones keep falling together and make uh, ever bigger ones. And so the Milky Way used to be sort of divvied up in lots and lots of little uh, pieces. And in all of those little pieces, uh, you had stars form. And those stars actually went through different cycles. You had some massive ones that burn out, they blow up in supernovae. And then when they explode, they, they throw out this carbon and oxygen, iron, all this good stuff that they made inside. Um, but then that gas uh, flows around. It collides with these other bits uh, that later become the Milky Way. And all this material starts mixing and churning uh, through all these motions that you uh, have generated predominantly through gravity. Uh, and before you know it, you've just got this whole slew uh, of material uh, that then collapses again, makes a molecular cloud, makes a star. Some of those stars explode. Others give back uh, elements to winds that they uh, have. And the whole process keeps going on and on and on until about five billion years ago when uh, we had one cloud make a, a particular star, namely our sun, um, and gases were still swirling around it in a, in a disk that then condensed into planets. The solar system. The solar system. And here we are now mostly frozen in uh, with all the elements uh, that had been made until about 5 billion years ago when the solar system formed. Wow. Yeah, it's just part of us. And so if you start thinking about it, the average age of the atoms of your body are somewhere around 10 billion uh, years. So we're really old. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you used to be huge. You were about... um, used a million light years across, which is look where all the atoms came from. And, you know, all these atoms had just this incredibly interesting past, so many of them having just completely different stories to tell of where they came from and all the things that happened to them before they ended up in your body. I want to repeat what you said, uh, that the atoms in a single human body were generated by what you estimate to be a billion different stars you know, 10 billion years ago and before, right? Yep. Including this during this dark age that you're you're investigating. Some of those elements are created back then. I would never have guessed that the particles that 
you know, those atoms could have traveled so far. I mean, they must have traveled enormous distances, as you said, mixing the output of a billion stars. You know, my naive view um, was that things were much more local than that, that particles weren't traveling and mixing over those vast distances, you know, so much. So that's part of what I'm amazed at when you say that. Um. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's this whole region, um, you know, that later became the Milky Way that, um, in fact, was sort of a million light years across. Aha, uh-huh, aha, uh-huh, so I see. You have to imagine right. you know, all those little lumps uh, floating around out there. They've got their stars in there, these tiny little galaxies, and they've got their supernova going on. But it, they constantly keep feeling gravity, and they just notice, like, oh, my gosh, it's, you know, like, it's denser over here. I want to fall there. And they keep falling together to eventually uh, make up what is the Milky Way today. Wow. And you have to combine that with this other sort of fact that you've noticed many times. I mean, you know, if you light a scented, uh, scented candle somewhere, you, you smell it right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just goes so fast. This mixing, um, you know, which is sort of convective flows uh, in the air, it happens extremely rapidly. And combine those two facts, and you start realizing, oh, yeah, oh, my gosh, um, we likely um, just mix all these elements that a supernova gives off uh, very quickly uh, into a fairly large mass around it. You combine all of that, and you end up you know, getting these enormous numbers. And I'm still not certain whether it's 100 million or a billion. It's just it's a lot larger than four. <laughs> yeah, and again, I'm, I'm kind of amazed. It's not because that you need all these different types of stars to generate all those elements. One star can generate all of them, right, or, or several stars. Exactly. It wouldn't have taken that many. Uh, in principle, it, it doesn't seem like that would be a requirement because uh, you know, just a small cluster of stars, a few of those ma- massive ones exploding, uh, you could imagine them being enough to sort of build up you know, all the elements that we have in the sun. Right. You know, I've, I've heard... Um, Physicists try to impress people by saying, you know, you are stardust. You originated in stars. I've heard that so many times I've gotten jaded, but you've impressed me all over again by describing just how many stars and over what vast distances all of, uh, yes. all, all of my components or all of our components came. So let's go back, though, to the, the early stars that you've been modeling in your computer simulations and describe how, after, you know, condensing and collapsing... Uh, they turn into these, uh, you know, full-fledged stars and generate all these these elements from the starting ingredients, which are just hydrogen and helium. Yeah, that's correct. So the interesting bit is that with hydrogen and helium gas, you think there's not much going on uh, in, in terms of chemistry. I mean, helium doesn't like to react. I mean, you know you can just inhale it and you're completely safe. <laughs> Sound really funny? <laughs> yeah. But you're safe. It's an inert gas. It doesn't like to react. And so it's really the hydrogen that does all the work. And hydrogen actually uh, can be quite explosive. I mean, you, uh, that one really likes to react uh, strongly. And so the, the key bit for us here was to sort of figure out how often uh, does it happen that we get hydrogen to make molecular hydrogen, so two hydrogen atoms together in a molecule. It seems sort of weird, right, because it's just, Okay, it's a simple molecule, but why does that matter? What does that have to do with stars? The key is when you have that molecule with two hydrogen atoms, they can rotate and vibrate. And these um, macroscopic vibrations, they can give off light. That is a crucial bit. Giving off uh, these bits of light uh, always slows down the molecules again. They're losing energy. They're losing energy. 
it always comes out of the kinetic energy, sort of the, the speed that the individual atoms have. Mm-hmm. So it slows everything down, which means the temperature goes down, which means the pressure goes down, which gravity then keeps, you, you know, gravity is relentless. It'll always win. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't, don't want to pick a fight with gravity. So this whole process can continue, um, and you get the gas to denser and denser form and condense it into a smaller and smaller region. Until eventually, it's about 10 times as heavy as a, a, a Jupiter, um, sort of a, formed a little nugget, um, which in fact is about 10 times larger than the sun. <laughs> At that point, the radiation gets trapped. All this light that the uh, molecules and atoms are emitting doesn't make it out anymore. It just keeps bouncing around inside the star. And now you have what you call a protostar. And that little nugget now, it can continue to accrete mass from its surrounding um, to get larger and larger. And that's sort of a, a fun fact that, in fact, all stars uh, in the universe all roughly started out at about 10 times the mass of Jupiter. Um, they only differ in how much more mass they accreted later on. So some get a lot more on top of it, and they become these really massive stars that are, you know, live really fast and die young. And others uh, just didn't get more mass and they, they sit around as what we call brown dwarfs. They don't even have nuclear fusion going on. They just uh, sit there sort of as these gas balls that get cooler and cooler as time goes on, but evolve very slowly. Hmm. So these early stars that you model, um, were they different from the stars we see today? That's a remarkable thing with the very first generation of stars. They seem to uh, prefer of only being really big ones. So at least about 30 times the mass of the sun. Which then means uh, that they will go uh, through the fuel very quickly. So we often call them the rock stars. They sort of live fast and die young. <laughs> rock stars, okay. <laughs> because being heavier really sort of makes the whole evolution much quicker. So these stars only live a few million years, or in a 10 million years. Wow, that is really a short life. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. For a short. star, yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's a thousand times shorter than what our sun is. That also is what is so beautiful about these predictions because we didn't put that in anywhere. And what we learned is that uh, the first stars would be really massive. They would die young, which then implies we shouldn't find any. There shouldn't be any around anymore today. Exactly, yeah. Right? We shouldn't see one that has only hydrogen and helium uh, in it. All the stars we should find in the universe should have some heavy elements in it. And so far that's true. People have been looking for decades now looking at all the stars uh, in our Milky Way and also nearby galaxies where we can still do this, um, test the light of these stars, of what it's made of. And we've uh, we found some that don't have um, too many heavy elements, but we've never found one that doesn't have any. And, and that means when you find a heavy element in a star, you're saying, oh, this is a second, third, or whatever generation star, because that heavy element has to have come from an ancestral star. That's right. If you have a star that you know has some carbon or oxygen or some iron in its atmosphere, uh, it, you know that means that it had to form a, from a gas cloud that uh, had some of those elements in it already. So it had to have been affected by a previous generation of stars. And, and those heavy elements are generated. We haven't quite said how yet, Tom. How, how are they yeah. generated from from these simple elements like hydrogen and helium? The more massive stars that uh, don't uh, live so long, 
um, they contribute a lot of the heavy elements, um, sort of heavier elements, and uh, helium in fact in this case, sort of carbon and oxygen, silicon, iron, all those, uh, all those things. They're usually made in massive stars. The particularly interesting ones are the, uh, stars that have about eight times the mass of the sun or much larger. And they do this by fusing the simpler elements, building larger and larger atoms, yeah? Yeah, that's what goes on in the center of uh, stars. I mean, like in our, in our sun, we've got uh, hydrogen just being burned, <laughs> we call it, even though it's a very different burning. It's nuclear fusion that takes hydrogen atoms and turns them into helium. And you can imagine, if you do that in the center of the star, after a while, you're done with all the hydrogen there. Like, all the hydrogen is already in helium. At that point, your star then starts taking the helium and turn it into carbon, and so on. So it keeps going, and if you have a really heavy star, you can make ever heavier atoms in the center of it. I think we're, we're missing one thing in our explanation, which yeah. is we said that if you find these heavy elements in a, in a present-day star, they got those elements from other stars. Yeah. But you've just explained a process in which a star can form its own heavy elements. Mm -hmm. So reconcile that for us. So with many uh, stars, when they um, make their heavy elements, they make them in the very center of the star. Ah. It really depends uh, on the star itself of whether you could ever get some of those heavy elements out onto the surface from where we see the light. So in order to trick us, what you could do is to put some heavy elements on top of a star, uh, on the outer layers, and it would look to us as like, oh, it's got all these heavy elements inside of it but they weren't there when the star actually was formed. You, you sort of tricked us. You put them on at a late time. Uh, they came from another star. They yeah. were just sort of collected. Yeah. There's many subtle things that sort of stars like to do, um, but in <clears throat> these sort of uh, low-mass stars that still live today in our Milky Way, that if we're sort of searching for the very first stars, of course, you're looking for really old ones. And if they're old, that already implies they cannot be uh, very massive. These stars are, you know, about 80% or 70% of the mass of our sun. And they lead fairly simple lives uh, from what we can tell. And mm -hmm. so they just make their heavy elements in the center. And they burn things even slower than the sun does. So they're still sort of in that phase where they just take some hydrogen and turn it into helium. And that provides enough energy <laughs> for them to sort of stay, uh, stay stable. You know, uh, we're using uh, words like birth and life and death when we describe the story of stars. And you're reminding me of a, an interview I did years ago with um, a chemist whose specialty is the origin of life. And I was asking him for a simple definition of life versus non-life. And it occurred to me that a number of the criteria that he mentioned um, could apply to stars. They're born, they die, they consume energy. They don't exactly reproduce, but one star does give rise to another star um, over time. But are they like living things in some ways? Yeah, I think that would be uh, going a little far, but it has all these connections I, I certainly see as well. It's just sort of this whole cycle that yeah. keeps happening. The stars is just sort of this manifestation um, for a certain amount of time. You know, sometimes it's fairly long, a billion years, but in the cosmic scheme of things, it's just sort of one quick phase that happened to that material at that time, then gets released again, or it, it gets, um, some of it might end up in a black hole or, uh, or some compact object, um, a new 
return star weight or sort of things that sort of sit around. These are all sort of phases. So you've been, again, modeling um, these processes with computers like the birth of stars and uh, also the way in which multiple stars ultimately form a galaxy? That's right. I mean, once we understood um, that these uh, early stars are very massive, of course, you know, it it opened up all these new questions. Well, well, if they're massive, they're going to give off lots of radiation. Well, if they give off all this radiation, they're going to push material around outside of it. That radiation affects all the the gas uh, nearby. Eventually, they're going to go supernova. They throw out these heavy elements. These heavy elements change the whole story I told you about uh, molecules. And, I mean, different radiation comes out from those atoms. And so there's just, like, so many things that follow right after that. If these stars leave a black hole behind, well, that can accrete gas and produce X-rays. And there's just like so many options. And that's where the beauty of these computer models comes in again is we then just can try this out. So we've now been modeling uh, entire galaxies where the whole goal is to build up the galaxies one star at a time, where we really try to follow the whole, the whole history of galaxies. But worry about every single star. Okay, here was a massive one. That went supernova. Oh, my gosh. And then it put out all this radiation. Um, here we had a black hole left behind. Look at that. It's all full of x-rays. And so we explore that. But now, of course, we've got some issues. We don't, we don't know all the little bits about it. So we don't know the mass of the stars exactly. We don't know the role of which heavy elements are coming out. Does it produce any dust? There's many open questions. And so we explore those with our computer models where we just keep changing some of these things. And look how different our predictions are if we change these different parts. Now, you, you refer to it as predictions. I mean, even though we're talking about the past, yeah. um, have you been able to, in any way, confirm some of your predictions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so unfortunately, we don't have any direct evidence that these particular computer models I'm, I'm discussing uh, are really correct, other than these indirect ones that we already talked about, where we said that if we were wrong about this, early stars being massive, that we should find some of the right. ones still in our memory. Right. Yeah. So that's a prediction. Yeah. That you wouldn't be able to find any of these early stars still alive. Exactly. So that's a consistency check right away. Right. Oh, okay, good. That fits. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's nice. For the, for the next part, it's just a beautiful time, though, because we have a few more years until this James Webb Space Telescope um, is going to be at its final uh, point where it's going to fly to and start observing some of these very early galaxies. Ooh, yeah. and that should be a big reality check, huh? Yeah, it's fantastic. But it's also, uh, the point is, we've done tiny little galaxies now that we can fit on a computer where I follow every single star, but I still want to make those models um, much more realistic or capture galaxies that are big enough uh, such that James Webb Space Telescope will see them. And so the timing sort of works out. We have a few more years. Computers will get bigger. Wow. Our ability to model um, every single star in our model galaxies will get better. And so I'm hoping to be, that things will just come together at the right time. As when we get the new data, we will have models uh, that are then good enough. But is it possible, Tom, then, that uh, a few years from now, when this James Webb Space Telescope starts operating, uh, that it will see an early galaxy that will match something that you have predicted with your computers um, and will, of course, 
leave you in a position of being overjoyed and, and proven right. <laughs> It'll be beautiful. <laughs> now, the question, of course, always there is, uh, you know, I'm very much looking forward to the data, right? Uh, and it's just, you still always wonder, well, did I get it for the right reason? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. There's a lot more to be done. Um, what kind of computing power are we talking about? You're not doing this on your laptop. No, this is not on the laptop. <laughs> so, you know, this is hundreds and thousands of processors that go there for many weeks and sometimes months. This is a supercomputer. Yes, and the key bit for us is we keep making algorithmic progress. Um, so that just means that the software that we're developing just gets better and better in capturing many scales and capturing many more of the details um, in these models. And so through that, we're making the larger um, progress at the moment. It's not just the raw computational power that's increasing. Um, are you taking sort of educated shortcuts rather than modeling every uh, atom in a star? <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, in fact, actually, when uh, these particular equations that model gases, they just sort of follow how mass, momentum, and energy is conserved. And they already, in a way, are sort of a model. They, they More correct would be to follow every single atom. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but you'd imagine that the computer that you would need uh, would have to be much heavier than the star itself <laughs> to actually model it that way. So, yes, we have to sort of look at more gross properties, you know, temperatures and pressures, and not just the speeds of individual atoms. Are you a computer programmer yourself? Oh, yeah, that's what we do is we program uh, computers all the time, and it's, it's an interesting part, I think, of this work, actually, where we, we have to be a little bit of jack-of-all-trades. You have to know about parallel programming, about some computer science stuff, about numerical analysis. Uh, and physics. Many different parts of physics, in fact, yeah. And so you can sort of afford to, to spend some time uh, on every single aspect of it. But it's, it's really trying to bring it all together and sort of make these complex models and then understand these enormous amounts uh, of data that we actually produce on these supercomputers and extract the information that then sort of makes sense uh, to us. How much data do you put in to a simulation? The, the simulation starts actually with uh, relatively little data because it's very easily described this early phase of the, the universe where it was um, fairly uniform. But the amount of uh, data and complexity in the model in our computer simulation, just like in the real universe, just keeps going up. So we add more and more points where we track the information as time goes on um, in order to be able to capture this ever more complex state that all these materials um, find themselves in. So you're watching the evolution of complexity. That's right. And the data grows and grows. It just keeps growing. There is just no, no end to it. How much information in the end do you produce then? We always produce as much as currently fits on our computers, <laughs> right? That's just a limitation. And when you say fits, you don't mean the hard drives. No, we were thinking the main memory. So if I, um, you know, if I have a terabyte of main memory, well, that tells me exactly how many numbers I can store. Oh, wow. And that's what I can track. And so it's been fascinating over the last two decades that I've sort of been in this field. And, of course, this has gone up uh, tremendously. And it's, it's sort of rewarding, I you see that visually in, when we make visualizations of our simulations, that there is really a, a qualitative difference of um, what we did 10 and 20 years ago to what we can do now. Wow. And what are you using? What is the computer that you use for this? Yeah, so I'm actually in sort of a fortunate position that I'm using uh, computers we have uh, locally here at Stanford. 
So these are uh, a few thousand cores uh, all sort of put together. Cores is just a fancy name for processor. A few thousand processors um, all hooked together. And sometimes we also calculate on NASA's big supercomputers and as well uh, as on the Department of Energy's uh, large supercomputers. Which, oh, Department of Energy's. They must have one of the biggest. Yes, yeah. And so there's much to say <laughs> sort of about this. In much of the work I do is really exploratory. I want to run many different models and sort of see what happens if, I, um, if these stars leave black holes behind, what if they go supernova, what if they don't go supernova, and sort of try to understand this. So we rely on you know, analyzing many different types of calculations and analyze them quickly, sort of make pictures, uh, plots, extract information in sort of a human, human form. Um, and that's often well done on computers that you have locally because you have a very rapid turnaround. Right. Um, but then one, once in a while you've got this sort of thing where you know exactly which model you want to run and you want to do the biggest run possible in order to sort of see whether your smaller calculations were in fact correct um, or whether there's still some wrinkle that only a very big calculation could see. Then we go to the very biggest machines and do these hero runs <laughs> where you have even more compute power go into the same problem. Now, I know some people, um, I think in astronomy and physics, when tackling huge computational problems uh, that were ungainly for a single computer, have, have experimented with distributing the problem among many, many computers, including the computers of just ordinary people who allow them, uh, allow the scientists to use a little bit of their computing cycles on the side to crunch away on a small part of the problem. And all these computers out there in the world crunching away on little parts, and then it's all combined to, to find an answer. Have you ever thought of doing that, or is that just not practical for you? Yes, I would have loved that, to be able to do first stars at home or first galaxies at home. Where yeah, yeah. We could use your screensaver and, yeah. <laughs> and help us. But unfortunately, the way uh, these problems work is um, they all have to be talking to each other all the time. And you can just sort of see that if you sort of think about, again, maybe water in a glass that you're sort of spilling, that you can't do different parts of this water flowing around separately. It needs to know what's coming from the left, what's coming from the right, uh. who's pushing who where. And so you have to be constantly in contact. So if one processor knows, okay, I'm sort of the left part of the glass and the other one's the right part of the glass, yeah. they have to constantly talk to each other. Okay, so, you know, how much are you pushing? How much am I pushing? And so these are tightly, what do we call, tightly coupled problems. Right. They don't lend themselves to be sort of broken up into tiny little chunks. Oh, so, so even though you've got, you know, a thousand or more cores, uh, you know, processors working on it, they have to be exchanging information. They can't each work on their own little part of the problem alone. Exactly. And it's the key part is that network on these machines that we have to be able to uh, have the processors talk very quickly to each other so that nobody has to wait um, for the message to arrive from the other one. Right. And so uh, that's this distinction of do you just have sort of a loose uh, set of computers sort of stacked uh, together, or do you have a well-integrated system that also provides a very fast network, uh, allowing the computers to talk uh, very rapidly to each other? Right, and definitely the latter in your case. Absolutely. And on top of it, uh, they also better have a lot uh, of disk space available and are able to write out all this information onto the disk so we can preserve it and uh, analyze it 
even further, sometimes for months or even years after we did the calculation. So how many petabytes of storage do you have? Well, it, you know, it really starts adding up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, uh, unfortunately, this is, of course, also always resource limited, and at some point we have to make these tough choices and sometimes delete old calculations and make room for the new ones. Oh, boy. Um, well, what is the output, though? I mean, obviously, the initial output is a bunch of numbers, but how do you convert it into something you can understand? Yeah, so in fact, the way we do this is the whole bit of space is broken up into little boxes. And then these boxes have little boxes inside of them that, again, have even more points storing uh, the information of that location there. So what's the density, the temperature, the velocity, you know, where, where is all the dark matter? Um, all those things get sort of written out in, in these very large files that can contain hundreds uh, of millions of these boxes that all are at different scales and also at different times. When we uh, visualize that, and I've worked with this with my colleague Ralph Kaler already for you know over a decade, um, we have to cleverly find all the data <laughs> that is at the same time and then combine them in a way that we can make an image of it. And so there we then um, really simulate of what would happen if that material emits some light and a camera could observe that. And so through that, we've, we've done many sort of visualizations, some that have been in magazines and in TV and uh, productions and planetarium shows, actually including the dark universe that's at the Cal Academy and the American Museum of Natural History at the moment. It's really the visualization part that sort of translates it back into a human form, a human digestible form. Um, so really, even for you, it's not just for the crowds at the planetarium to excite them with movies. You need that visualization yourself to start to understand really what this means? Oh, completely. It's, you often say a, a picture is a thousand words. Yeah. <laughs> it, for that, I often say a movie is a thousand pictures. Um, you know, <laughs> so there's got to be a million words. And it's really so often true, and I've experienced this many times, working on these visualizations and the movies that we make from this, we notice very subtle uh, effects that we couldn't see in a single image. Um, it's really where certain waves are traveling. You know, your eyes are good at picking that up. Yeah, you know, a huge part of our brain is dedicated to visual processing. Yeah. Uh, so in a sense, you're having your computer, in the visualization step, translate this information into terms that our computer is good at <laughs> at, uh, at processing. Absolutely. And in, in fact, uh, I learn a tremendous amount from from visuals we create of these calculations. It's also fun. It sort of it works, you know, sort of as a human, you remain engaged. And as a consequence, I, I spend a huge number of hours of looking at different data sets because it's fun and intricate, and there's so much uh, information there that you're trying to tease out. By being able to interactively uh, look at your data, it sort of maximizes the time you spend with it, which maximizes how, how well you understand the data that you actually generated. What are some of the most exciting moments you've had in your work when the data has been processed, when it has been turned into a kind of movie of, say, a star forming or a galaxy forming or a supernova exploding. Tell me about some of the eureka moments that you've had when you watch these things. Oh, there's been quite a number. Um, and I think I 
guess it was a very first star calculation. I did a movie once, like that was sort of <clears throat> late 90s, where I just kept zooming in and zooming in onto that protostar. And here it was, it was like way out uh, where you, you just barely could see the galaxy it formed in, or it was of that lump of matter that it formed in. It was way out there, and I, I just sort of saw this sort of relatively simple universe, and then you, there was an interesting spot that you could see, and so you kept zooming and zooming. And I went 10 and 12 orders of magnitude in length scale towards it, and I was just completely blown away that at every step along the way, there was some different physics going on. There was all these intricate structures and sort of filaments and sort of turbulent regions, and then there were smooth regions again, and then you could see this protostar with a disk around it. It was just stunning. You know, that was one of those moments where I was like, wow. <laughs> <sighs> it really is amazing. And again, I, I, I think, you know, as you watch these um, objects assemble, as you watch these dynamic processes, this evolution going on, it is sort of like watching a living thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's just so dynamic. It's just mesmerizing. And it, you know, your, your brain doesn't necessarily process that you, you, you might be watching something that is a billion-year <laughs> evolution um, and, you know, all the things going on. But it has sort of a life of its own. Does it seem crazy to you that we humans, when it comes to our own affairs, can't even agree on what happened last week or last year? And people like you are with... Um, one hopes a certain amount of accuracy, telling us what happened 13 billion years ago in the universe? Well, how <laughs> wonderful is it that I get to do that uh, every day, sort of to, to just keep thinking really hard about uh, very hard uh, questions. And of course, there's all sorts of ways of how we uh, often can be wrong. Like, I mean, it's just preposterous to think that some of our stuff actually fits on a computer that we have. Yeah. That our model yeah. is like intricate enough. And there, there could be all sorts of surprises uh, waiting for us, and we got things wrong. This hasn't happened in the last 10 years since we sort of uh, worked out these predictions, but that's no guarantee uh, for the future. The beauty, though, it, it's not going to be some totally obvious thing. You know, it's, it's going to be something super interesting <laughs> if, if these uh, predictions turn out wrong. Um, it, we would learn a tremendous amount by sort of proving these things wrong. <laughs> so, you know, you can't lose. Well, over and over again in physics, we see predictions. Uh, yes, there are a lot of wrong ones. There are more wrong ones than, than right ones, but we do see some coming true. So I'm crossing my fingers that your predictions come true in a few years when the uh, James Webb Space Telescope um, is online. And uh, if so, I'm going to be giving you another call. <laughs> okay, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. Hey, my pleasure. Tom Abel will be lecturing on the early history of the universe uh, this coming week in our broadcast area. That'll be at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz on Tuesday, May 27th at 7.30 p.m. It is free and open to the public, uh, presented by the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back on these airwaves next week. In the meantime, you can always listen online through any number of channels. There is our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. There is iTunes. And there are all those mobile apps, like the Stitcher radio app. You can listen to us on the go. Give it a try. Thank you.